Hello and welcome back to the Global Inquirer. As you might already know, we are an undergraduate research podcast that uses case studies to understand how global trends are impacting real lives. Uh, this is a bit of a, a teaser episode for our forthcoming season seven. We're doing things a little bit differently than we usually do. We interviewed a bunch of different researchers about something happy that's going on in the world. So. Over the course of this episode, you're going to hear about four different positive stories, uh, unlike the, the more morbid stories we usually tell. Uh, I just want to give one big shout out to Andy, who has been our technical director for the past, what seems like forever. He has really been the backbone of this podcast and is leaving a really incredible legacy, so thank you so much, Andy. This is also my last episode as a quasi-host, uh, so I hope you guys enjoy it. Today we're going to have Emma Ross, Roma Chitko, myself, and Katia Sanko and Ali Goldstein all given a short little expose, so enjoy. Hi guys, um, I'm Katya Senko and I'm a researcher with the Global Enquirer and I'm lucky to be joined by Allison Goldstein, my very good friend and roommate and also STEM major. <laughs> that's it, that's, that's just it. general STEM. I major in STEM. Ali, <laughs> <laughs> would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, my name is Ali, you don't have to call me Allison. Um, I'm a third year neuroscience major. Um, I live with Katya. Happy to be here. Thank you for joining us today. Okay, so Balthazar texted the team a couple weeks ago to just come up with one topic about a good thing that's happening in the world. And so I study Russia and Eurasia, and so I kind of came to a dead end with that. And so I came home with that task, and I talked to Ali, who is a science major, as I already <laughs> mentioned. And so Ali spends a lot of time on science Twitter, which I've learned is a very fascinating place. Ali made this really interesting discovery um, Ali, would you like to take us through your sure. discovery? Yeah, well, I, 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 it sounds weird. I didn't make the discovery, <laughs> but I, I did find the discovery just, just doing my scrolling. And I found this, this headline that popped up, and it says, the fanged cat-sized deer relative, also known as the Vietnam mouse deer. And I, like, didn't even keep reading. I just immediately was like, that animal has so many other animals being referred to it, and I, what is this? I don't even remember if I knew this before or after you had told me that you needed a happy thing. Mm -hmm. I don't remember the timeline of it. But basically, I read a bunch of articles about this because this also came up as something trending on my Twitter because Twitter knows me very well. So the shortcoming of this format of just like saying this in a podcast is that you guys don't get to see immediately what the mouse deer looks like. And there's a lot of adjectives that can be used. Right. Yeah. There, so many. So many. Ali, would you like to we'll just, try? We'll kick it off. We'll kick it off with the facts. Okay. So, it's pretty small. Uh, imagine I don't know, five pounds if I had to guess just by looking at it. Sure. Um, but like bigger than, much bigger than a squirrel. How much right. would a squirrel weigh? Like two? Two? One? I don't know. I don't pick up squirrels. <laughs> That's not something I've ever. I'm trying to compare this to my dog. <laughs> Is right. like what okay. I'm trying to. Like chihuahua um, size. Is right. But the thing about it is it doesn't, it looks, okay, it looks like, it looks photoshopped is the only way I can describe it. It has the body of a deer, but like, again, small, I think very small, and like the legs of a deer, but even like skinnier, like it kind of walks on like toothpicks. It's also a fun fact, the smallest hooved animal in the world. So it has hooves, like mm -hmm. it's, I don't remember what that 
classification of animal is called. Right. I can't provide the scientific name. I'm sorry. Okay, science um, yeah, rev revoke my degree. <laughs> but it's the smallest tooth animal in the world. So it, it has like this bod, like deer body and like a deer tail situation. It kind of like flicks and is like white on the bottom. But its ears are mousy. Very rodent-like. Very rodent-like. And the eyes. The well, the eyes are also deer-like at the same time. Yeah, the eyes are massive for this thing's head. Like, absolutely massive and like completely black, like a deer's. Um, and then it's, I, you may have heard me mention it in the, the headline of the article that I found this in, but it's also fanged. And at first I was like, oh, it just has teeth. That's what that means. Oh no, it, it, it is fanged. I don't know, I can't like Basically describe it to you. Basically the only tooth is like a fang. It, yeah, it, it, I don't even know if it has other teeth, but when its mouth is closed, it has like a long tooth come out the side of its mouth. And I, yeah, it has like, it just looks like a fanged mouse head on the body of a very small deer. And I guess that's why they call it a mouse deer. Basically. And we, we, we were looking for videos of the mouse deer eating things because we were like, how, what's the mechanic? Like, how does this work? Um, and so basically we found a video of somebody feeding apples to the mouse deer yeah. and it just has to mush it down. It literally can't chew it because yeah. it has one it just, like pointy <laughs> like toothpick of a tooth. Yeah, it can't like rip or chew. Like it just smashes the top and bottom of its mouth on top of each other. Um, and also just so you don't think we're idiots, the, the one in the video is like not the Vietnamese mouse deer. Mm -hmm. Like there are other species of it that were not thought to be extinct. Mm -hmm. I promise we're not like messing with you and um, I guess our, our big takeaway with this like we just keep on saying that evolution really did this animal <laughs> dirty it does yeah it's I'm sure it's advantageous in some ways but it's really like it, it's still very much in the early stages of like okay it lives in the forest so it should be small but have long legs but also just a it's just its body is massive because um, it has four stomachs. It does. It has four stomachs. I forgot that too. That's the thing is like you read more about this animal and you learn more and more about it every day. Um, it has four stomachs, which makes sense because a lot of animals that eat plant matter need more uh, developed digestive systems. But four, and also the the I don't remember where I was reading that about. It said like it was like it has four stomachs, but the third isn't developed super well. And I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> like it really, it I don't even know what this is like. I don't know. That's too mean to say. What is? I was what gonna say like to this say? is like the kid in elementary school that's oh. allergic to everything. <laughs> like, <laughs> come on. Its stomach, like, it's really just like it's trying its best, um, but it's just like how does it survive? You know, like right. how does it can't really eat a lot. So, do you think that a lot of preservation efforts are gonna have to be made in order to keep this animal alive, or like, what do you expect for the future? I think. I mean, maybe, I don't know where this falls in terms of like what predators it has. Um, like again, it's like that it might just be lucking out because nobody wants to eat it. Um, but like the, like the reason why it was thought to be extinct was just like like human uh, hunting and like poaching, I guess maybe for its like pelt, I don't know. Um, it's really small, but basically it was like humans that had driven it to like the brink of extinction. So I think it's more of just like an awareness thing and like maybe raising some in captivity. Um, but like I was mentioning, like they just kind of put these cameras up, so they now know that it exists, but they have no idea how many or like what the what the population is actually like. Like it could just be one that's moving around really quickly, and it's just in all of the cameras all the time. <laughs> we we really have no idea how how populous it is. So I think maybe bringing some into captivity 
breeding. I don't know. I have no idea. But if it's like doing fine, if it's like a healthy population, then they might just leave it alone. Right. Um, I don't think it's in a particularly endangered environment right now. Okay. Well, I think it feels like we've spent a lot of time roasting this poor right. small no. animal. Right. No. It's precious. This is really this is really great, <laughs> and it's been really refreshing to see this, just because it feels like a lot a lot of the environmental news has been related to climate change and just increasing extinctions and, and decreasingly habitable um, like ecosystems. Um, I was actually checking out the website of like the organization that is in charge of sending out teams of researchers to go try to look into these lost animals and it's really cute because on their website they have kind of like silhouettes of all the animals they're looking for and then they kind of do like a Mythbuster style like stamp on the picture Aww. if it's like found or like Aww. whatever. It's like really cute that they're kind of like, oh, like there's a bunch of animals in for a really Spanish long time. Yeah. yeah, they were just kind of like taken as lost, but now that it's becoming like more of a thing where it's like, we need to make sure that we're not losing all of the wildlife on the earth. Right. That like, oh, maybe it's worth finding these guys and, and helping them. Oh, that's so wonderful. <laughs> That is so tender. Yeah. And I think we're being mean, but like I said, I want them. Like, they're precious. And, <laughs> like... And to be clear, this has really seeped into our personal lives. <laughs> this mouse deer has kind of seeped into our everyday language in our household. Mm -hmm. uh, so thank you for listening to us ramble about this really precious discovery. Mm -hmm. um, if you guys are interested in this topic, please Venmo Allie uh, for her mouse deer adoption. Fund. Right, yeah, I'm gonna need bedding, I'm gonna need water bottles, it's gonna need food, it's gonna need probably a, no, it doesn't need a cage, it can sleep in my bed, but you know, you know what I mean. It's, there's gonna be a lot of money that goes into me raising these things properly, so I'd really appreciate some support from the audience. I was really excited to find um, these stories that model-nosed dolphins have returned to the Potomac River. Because I'm a Northern Virginia native, so whenever you talk about the Potomac River and it kind of flows from the Chesapeake, you automatically think, oh, it's like dirty and disgusting. You still wouldn't want to go swimming there. But recent reports have shown that conditions have started to improve. So we've been seeing bottlenose dolphins and families and pods swimming up there. Well, there's still more so towards um, the outer reaches of the Potomac River, but university projects have been able to catalog more and more of them. Since the 1960s, basically, is when you started to see less and less. I mean, when George Washington built his home in Mount Vernon, you know, he was still able to see dolphins there and even, you know, bald eagles, stuff like that. But um, I guess since industrialization and pollution started to become uh, more of a problem, the river, I have a quote here from the Smithsonian reports, uh, began largely overrun with algae, trash, human waste, and pollutants. So not the best place for little bottlenose dolphins. Sadly. So yeah, for generations, the Potomac River has been too polluted for diverse marine life. But since this past October, studies from Georgetown University have been able to catalog over 1,000 dolphins in the lower reaches of the river. So it looks like they're back. We will hope that they will stay back. We just have to do our due diligence in keeping the river clean. So in general, I mean, I was looking at sources from the Washington Post and the Smithsonian. There's been a general 50-year restoration effort. Clean River Project's anti-pollution efforts have made significant progress. Specifically, they target improving sewer and short-term runoff systems. So general cleanup efforts, but specifically because Georgetown University has been doing more research there with their Potomac Chesapeake Dolphin Project, we've been able to specifically catalog marine life there.
And I mean, just looking at the articles that I've read, it kind of seems like a positive feedback loop where the rivers start looking cleaner, people get more excited, and then they want to do more to keep the rivers clean. So that's a hope for humanity. All right, so briefly, I'm just going to describe where we've been able to find our little porpoise friends. The studies have been able to find the dolphins in the Potomac River, which is really surprising because to get to the Potomac River, they have to cross the Chesapeake Bay, which is also historically, since the 1900s, not known as the cleanest, sadly. To be able to get to the Potomac River, they kind of have to come up more inland. They're still not able to find dolphins in maybe areas such as Alexandria. Um, they've been found more in the outer reaches, but... If you look at a map, you can see greater dolphin presence generally along the southern and east coast along Florida and the Carolinas. So it's kind of surprising that we're finding them as far up as Virginia and closer inland. Previously haven't been in these areas for over 50 years. So this past October kind of marks change in this trend. So now in general, we're going to look at the results of what we can expect to see now that we've noticed that dolphins are back. The sign of marine life signals healthier water, which is good, which means that we can continue to keep up our efforts to clean the rivers, to encourage more marine life to come back, you know, keep the cycle going. Since they haven't been here since the 1960s, it's really surprising to see that families have returned and mated and breed in the area, and we're getting a lot of scientific research. The Georgetown Project in particular has been better able to study dolphin births since observing the Potomac River growth, and we're better able to study their migration patterns, which is really important information as global warming continues to increase in the coming years. So the more information that we can get about populations such as dolphins, the more we'll know about their future trends. And specifically, they've been able to photograph hundreds and hundreds of dolphins. They come in pods. I think the largest pod they were able to spot was up to 200, but 1,000 at this point have been cataloged in the river, which is really, really surprising if I haven't stressed that enough. The researchers have been having fun with the dolphin spottings, and they've been naming the dolphins. I read, you know, a bunch of them have been named after historical figures, founding fathers, abolitionists, suffragettes. And then just this one name that I found was really funny. You know, they have pictures on the different websites. One of the dolphins, the first baby dolphin birth that they were working with, they was named Gwendolyn Mink. So for the Potomac River and the Chesapeake Bay area in particular, you know, if you're listening to this podcast and you're from Northern Virginia, I think you're better able to impact this uh, ecosystem in particular by, you know, lowering your consumption. I happen to be taking a climate change class this semester, and I know a couple of things that they've been saying is, you know, the higher affluence that an individual has, and, you know, Northern Virginia tends to be known as a place with some affluence, there's more consumption. So when you're purchasing goods and, and services from stuff, you know, it takes a lot of gas to get cars from one place to another. If you're purchasing, you know, a lot of new goods, it takes greenhouse gas gases to produce those goods. So, you know, generally lowering your consumption can be a good step, but ultimately it's technology, technological advances, which make processes more efficient, which can reduce waste the best. So, you know, part of why we're probably seeing cleaner waters in addition to cleanup efforts is we've been able to make significant technological advances so that we're not, so that we are more efficient with our emissions. But, you know, as individuals, fertilizers and runoff, taking care of your grass, you have to be mindful about the different chemicals that you're putting out into the world. It's just really encouraging that we've been able to see so many dolphins in an area that, I mean, I, when I was growing up, you just kind of considered like such a dirty, filthy area that, you know, you wouldn't really expect marine life to return to. So it's a hopeful story for the future. Hopefully small stories can encourage people that something can be done and just, doesn't just resign people to 
accepting fate. The Haven Shelter is a homeless shelter on the corner of Market and First Street, which is like by the downtown mall. It's in a renovated church, which was purchased in uh, around 2005 by Tom Shadiak, who's better known for being the director of Evan Almighty when he returned to Charlottesville to shoot the movie. And while he was here, him and his crew got to know a lot of the people who were experiencing homelessness in the city, which is a problem that we can still see with like the gentrification of Charlottesville today. And he decided that he wanted to do something to address this problem. So he purchased and renovated the first Christian church down by the downtown mall. And the purpose of this project was to create a low barrier day shelter and social resource center. And so the Haven officially opened its doors in 2010, fulfilling this purpose and has been operating to help the homeless community in Charlottesville ever since then. Every Wednesday, the Haven hosts what they call a lunch with a mission, which is a public lunch, which means that their kitchen is open to everyone, not just guests of the shelter. And the lunch is provided by a rotation of local chefs who volunteer to cook there. They have a suggested donation of $10, which goes to ingredients, kitchen supplies, and service. And I think the service is the most interesting part because past and present Haven guests who have experienced homelessness help with every part of the process. So they transform the dining hall into a restaurant, they work in the kitchen, and they act as wait staff to earn both money and job experience. So not only is it a way to donate your money to a good cause, but it's also a way to get more involved in your community because the lunch is deliberately communal style. So when you show up, whether it's alone or with a group of friends, you'll be seated at these really big tables with a bunch of other people. And the whole point is to enjoy your lunch break with strangers and to get to know people outside of, outside of your own community. So it's a great way for anyone who feels trapped in a bubble, whether that's at UVA or otherwise, to take a step towards forming relationships. They have a website called thehaven.org, which is probably the best place to go, or it's within walking distance of the corner in UVA on the corner of Market and First Street. So I'm reprising my role as a researcher today. I'm going to give a brief little history of um, what's gone on between Ethiopia and Eritrea in the past year and kind of go over their whole relationship over the past 30-40 years. So in the build-up to World War II, Italy was using its colony Eritrea uh, to launch an invasion of Abyssinia, which is now called Ethiopia. Um, which was a pretty significant factor in how World War II got started. Many people point to it as the lack of international action around it as a signal to Hitler that the international community doesn't really care about invasions right now. Anyway, so after World War II, Eritrea was put under the control of Ethiopia, who was a allied power, but it still had some level of autonomy. In the ensuing decades, the the Emperor of Ethiopia, Emperor Selassie, put many restrictions on the government and how it could operate. 
And by 1962, the government of Eritrea dissolved and the official invasion of Eritrea by Ethiopia began, thus marking the start of the Eritrean War of Independence. Now, after 30 years of on and off war, there were some pretty devastating effects on the economy and it left over 100,000 people dead. Many case studies of pretty terrible and heartless massacres on both sides. Um, war is obviously never good, but this one in particular seemed to be pretty brutal. Through that time, there's political strife in both Ethiopia and Eritrea. The emperor of Ethiopia also was assassinated in 1974 by a Marxist regime. They actually buried him underneath the toilet, um, but that's neither here nor there. There was another internal coup in Ethiopia, marked the end of this Eritrean-Ethiopian war. The entering government of Ethiopia really had no interest in continuing this war, so by 1992, Eritrea declared independence. For the next six or so years, there was a relative calm. I wouldn't necessarily call it a peace, but there was at least no real fighting until the 6th of May, 1998, when the Eritrean leader felt his power waning. They decided to annex a small town that held no real significance at all, other than that it was right at the border. It had no natural resources, oil, diamonds, really nothing that made it valuable at all, other than it was just highly emblematic. Uh, scholars have described it as two bald men fighting over a comb. So this really invigorated the terrible tensions and war once again broke out between the two sides, a number of skirmishes and just heavy mobilization. In June 2000, there was a peace agreement that was signed establishing the Eritrea-Ethiopia Boundary Commission, kind of settled on some seemingly finalized borders uh, 18 months later, uh, with the original town in question being awarded to Eritrea. Now, this was not accepted by Ethiopia. Without the preconditions of further negotiations, the peace agreement didn't completely dissolve, but it was clear that it had not been completely resolved. And then over the years, a number of skirmishes and fighting had broken out. Not real war, but um, definitely causing death and destruction, and causing Eritrea to implement a mandatory military service. This service had drastic effects in Eritrea. Hundreds of thousands of Eritreans have fled to Ethiopia, Europe, and has greatly contributed to the migrant crisis. Many individuals suspected of trying to avoid this service have been arrested, tortured, and held indefinitely. They shoot to kill policy on the border for troops, for anyone suspected of trying to flee this mandatory service. Fast forward a little bit to the mid-2010s, and there is great unrest in Ethiopia. Mass protest in the streets, and the political situation is seemingly dire, until finally the prime minister was forced to step down, enter Abiy Ahmed, the now current prime minister, takes control at the tender age of 41 years old and implements a number of massive reforms. According to Maria Burnett of the Human Rights Watch, 
Abia uh, released thousands of political prisoners, restored access to a um, number of websites that have been blocked, lifted terrorism listings for opposition groups, and was committed to the reform of many repressive laws, and also was big enough to admit that torture had occurred in the country. Most importantly, though, he pushed for peace with the neighboring Eritrea. And in June, Abia announced that Ethiopia would honor the original 2000 Border Commission's decision. From this point on, things moved at what scholars have called a breakneck speed for peace talks of any kind throughout the world. The two countries entered a substantive peace agreement and their respective economies have flourished. Ethiopians and Eritreans can now call each other on the phone once again. They have direct passenger flights and a number of economic ties have been reinvigorated. You know, ports, Eritrean ports being at the center of those negotiations. Eritrea has also withdrawn their troops from the border. Although Ethiopia has yet to do the same, the situation is certainly on the up and up. Most notably, the Ethiopian Prime Minister, in a quote to the New York Times, said, there is no longer a border between Eritrea and Ethiopia because a bridge of love has destroyed it. So pretty touching stuff. While other countries like the UAE and Saudi Arabia have been pushing for, for peace for some time, as well as officials from the Trump administration, this can be wholly considered as an African-led peace deal. Many scholars believe it will have reverberating effects throughout the continent, hopefully, and lead to more economic ties as a way to kind of end decades-long conflicts. Then in 2019, for his work in the peace deals, Abiy Ahmed was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. Although there is still much work to be done in this very fragile piece, this is definitely one of the happier stories of 2019 and, and has hopefully put to bed a decades-long war. Thank you guys so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed. I hope that put a smile on your face. I also want to introduce Emma Ross. You heard her at the top of the episode as our new host. We know she's going to do really great things in 2020, and the whole team is really excited to hear her take on the Global Enquirer. And I just wanted to give uh, one last thank you to the whole team. Emmy Lockwood and Andy have really been there during my whole time as host, and I couldn't have been blessed with a better team. It's been really amazing to build this podcast from the ground up, and I have a lot to be thankful for, and also very thankful for you, our listeners. So, as always, make sure to like, comment, subscribe, and all that jazz um, wherever you find your podcasts. And one last thing, we do have our famous live episode uh, coming up on February 12th at 7 p.m. at the Miller Center. I'll be joined by Professor Ruth Mason of the Law School, as well as fellow researcher Anavan Spakovsky. And we will be discussing tax avoidance across the globe, how corporations do it, and how individuals do it. Uh, we're really excited for this episode here, and uh, we hope you're able to either show up in person or tune in over our live stream on Facebook. And can't wait to see you there, so be sure to tune in.